following the gradually increasing clarity around who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Back in chapter 16, a few weeks ago, Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. He's this promised Savior the Jewish people have been expecting. But then Peter challenges Jesus' plan when Jesus shares he is going to Jerusalem to die. In chapter 17, so far we've looked at how, first the, the, the transfiguration, how Jesus' appearance is changed, how a voice from heaven declares him to be the Son of God and tells us to listen to him. And then we saw Jesus' power displayed as he heals a boy the disciples couldn't. And yet we see at the same time Jesus' submission to God's plan for him. Declaring again his path leads to and through the cross. Today we're going to look at a last short section in chapter 17. And there's a, a whole lot going on here. So why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. It's on page 985 again in these red Bibles. Turn with me to chapter 17 and we're going to read um, starting at verse 24. Chapter 17, verse 24, page 985. I just pray before we read. Lord God, would you help us today to listen to and hear your voice? Lord, we remember your voice from heaven declaring that this is your son and that we should listen to him. Lord, as your son speaks today, may we listen to him. Would his word be powerful among us? Amen. So starting at verse 24. After Jesus and his disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked. From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. Then the sons are exempt, Jesus said to him. But so that we may not offend them, go out to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and for yours. It's a short section. That's a pretty peculiar section. It's a section we only find in Matthew's gospel. So we have four gospels, four biographies of Jesus in the Bible. And, and only Matthew has this section. Now, in some ways, that's not too much of a surprise. Matthew, you might remember, was a tax collector himself when Jesus called him to follow. And so Matthew perhaps has this special interest in taxation stories. But we're going to look at this part of God's word and see what it has to say. I want us to focus on Jesus' parable about kings and taxes as we get started. Jesus asks 
Peter a question, as he so often does. Jesus is so often asking us questions rather than giving us answers. Asking us to think and consider rather than laying it all out on the surface for us. What do you think, Simon, he says, uses Peter's other name. What do you think? What do the kings, who do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes from? Now, duty is kind of indirect taxes, things like VAT we pay here. It's kind of baked into prices and you wouldn't see it. The other taxes, ones you'd pay directly. Who do they pay duty and taxes to? Who do they collect it from? Their own sons or, or from others? It's not, a, it's not a trick question. It's not even a difficult question. It uh, would have been straightforward back then. Royals don't pay taxes. Royals don't pay taxes. I was checking up and apparently the queen does pay taxes. Uh, apparently she, she does so voluntarily. In 2007 she decided that she was very magnanimous of her to join in with us. But back then, back then the children of kings and queens wouldn't have paid taxes. Everyone else didn't have so much choice. A common regard and subject. I guess you probably did have a choice really. You could probably die a grisly death in some unpleasant way. Or you could pay your taxes. But who do the kings collect taxes from? Subjects, not sons. Easy enough. Subjects, not sons. Well done, Peter. And Jesus adds the corollary. He says sons are exempt then. Sons are free, he says, in the original language. Interesting stuff, Jesus. Thank you. Some taxation insights. Uh, It's going to really help me in my next game of taxation, Trivial Pursuit. Can you imagine that be a... Pretty exciting game there. What is Jesus getting at with this talk of taxation and kings and sons and subjects? Well, time for a little bit of background. First, we have to get our heads around what this temple tax was, this two drachma tax. It seems like everyone at the time knew already, so there's pretty much nothing needed to be recorded here to explain it. But we need to dig a little bit more to figure out what's going on. If we look back in the Bible, we can find two roots that this might have grown out of. In, uh, in Exodus 30, a long way back, there's a description of a tax that needs to be paid during each census. Seems to be the ultimate root of this. But there's no instruction there on how often you have to take a census. You know, do you need to have one every year? And in fact, if you know your Bible, you'll remember the story of King David taking a census and how that wasn't a particularly good idea. Second, uh, after Israel had been away into exile and find their way back into the land, in the book of Nehemiah, we find an annual tax showing up to provide for the temple, for the upkeep of the Jewish temple, for the supplies it needed. That's in Nehemiah 10. But that's not a perfect fit either. That's for a, a, a different amount of money. From, from other historical records, it seems that the tax he's talking about is actually pretty recent. It's popped up not that much before Jesus is walking on the earth. Probably rooted in these old ones, probably for the same purpose to provide for the temple, for the sacrifices there, for the upkeep of the temple. Uh, And it seems to have been received pretty well. It's not the sort of tax that people grumbled against and hated. Uh, It was was normally paid at the Passover. So do you remember the stories of Jesus in the temple uh, overturning the tables of the money changers? Well, those tables were there because you had to pay this tax in a particular Jewish coinage. And wherever you came from in the Roman Empire, you might have different kinds of money and you'd have to change it in the temple to pay this tax. Really quick aside for those who have questions over the historicity of these accounts, over whether these are authentic accounts. In AD 70, 
bit after Jesus lived, the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem fell to the Romans. And the Roman emperor at the time, Vespian, he changed this temple tax into a tax for the temple of Jupiter in Rome, a tax that was absolutely hated then by all the Jewish people. Now, if this biography of Jesus, if this was actually written a long time after the fact, when this tax was a hated thing and a despised thing, then this, this picture of Jesus paying it would be really peculiar. It wouldn't make any sense. So that suggests to us that this was written before the tax changed, before AD 70. Incidental, right? But it was written within the lifetimes of those living alongside Jesus. Okay, that aside over. Right. With the temple tax, Jesus' parable about the sons of the king don't pay taxes. Let's put them together. He is saying that he is exempt from taxes because he's a son, a son of the king who levied the tax. Who's the king of the temple? God's the king of the temple. The temple is the place where particularly the presence of God was manifest, was known and present. And Jesus is God's son. Do you remember the the heavenly voice of the transfiguration? This is my son. Remember Peter's confession. You are you are the Christ or the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Do you remember all the way back early in Jesus' story when as a child he ended up in the temple? His parents lost him in the temple. And he said, you should have known I would be in my father's house. So the, the temple is kind of God's house. The tax relating to the temple, God's tax. Who are the sons? Jesus. Jesus is saying as a son, he's exempt from God, the king's tax only needs to be collected from subjects of the kingdom, not sons. Jesus doesn't need to pay. He is going to pay up, but he doesn't need to. It's, I guess, a bit like our queen. She doesn't have to pay income tax, but she decided to pay it. But what makes this significant? What makes this exciting and interesting and important for us today is that it isn't just Jesus who is exempt Look carefully at verse 26. Can you find verse 26 here? Jesus says, then the sons are exempt, doesn't he? Then the sons, it's plural. Is that just a reflection of this parable comparing subjects and sons? Well, read on into verse 27. Who is not going to offend them? Jesus says, so that we may not offend them. Peter and Jesus are exempt from this temple tax. Peter and Jesus are sons of the king. That's huge. That's significant. Now imagine this. Imagine you are working on your your family tree. I don't know if you had an interest in that sort of thing. You're working on your family tree one day. You've got a box of papers from some distant relative in your family and you're going through these papers just trying to fill out some of those boxes up the way and you discover in your family line there's royalty. You're royal blood. You're, you're connected. Or imagine this. Imagine this. Okay, you walk past one day in the field a giant stone with a sword stuck in it and you think, oh, sword and a stone. I think I'll just have a go. I think I'll just have a go. And you reach out and the sword comes out. You are royalty. 
Christians, we, through Jesus, were adopted into God's family. We become his children. We become royalty. We become princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. Not just some small outlying island that you won't know the name of, but princes and princesses in this kingdom that stretches through the whole of creation, not just the whole of the earth. That's news. I take a picture this morning and get a snap of the most royalty in one room at any one time. I'll get you onto the cover of Hello Magazine. They'll be thrilled. We've seen glimpses of this expansion of Jesus' sonship through the gospel as we've been reading through this story of Jesus. It's the thing that's sewn up again and again. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' really, really famous setting out of the ethics of his kingdom? He talks about how peacemakers will be called sons of God. He talks about how we're to love our enemies so that we would be sons of our Father who is in heaven. Or remember the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember how the Lord's Prayer starts? When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray, it starts with our Father. Our Father. This idea of sonship has been there in the gospel. But here it becomes more pronounced. In fact, the idea stretches further back into the Old Testament. God speaking to Pharaoh who oppresses his people before they come out of Egypt. God describes Israel as his son in Exodus 4. And back at the start of Matthew, maybe you'll remember, Matthew quotes lots of prophecies for the Old Testament, lots of foretellings. And one of the ones he quotes, he says, Out of Egypt I called my son. He says it's fulfilled in Jesus, but it was written about Israel. The intimate family connection we have with God just starting to become clear. It's a bit like, uh, imagine you get on the train at Waverley on a sunny day. But you can't really tell it's a sunny day at Waverley, can you? You're down there in the cutting. But every now and then, as you head out of the station, you get a, a, a flash of the sun between buildings, and then you're into the tunnel. And then, and then a flash between some houses, maybe around a chimney. But then, after a while, the train rushes into the countryside, and suddenly, the sunlight is everywhere. This Clarity, You can see suddenly, and that's what's happening here with this idea of sonship, with our adoption and incorporation into God's family, with the way we become a part of his very children. Flashes, glimpses, and then it gradually becomes clear and the view opens out in front of us. We are sons, not subjects, of this greatest king of all. We're children of God. And as children of God, we are free. We're free. That's all very good, but what does it actually mean to be free? Non-dom status for us all. Can you rip up your next tax return and enjoy not paying anything? Is that, is that what he means? Do we have some sort of citizenship that removes us from this world? We live in some sort of parallel well, that, that was actually Catholic doctrine at one time. They held that the priests, ministers were, were above the law, were above taxes, that they didn't have to submit or pay because they were part of God's kingdom. I think pastors should get that sort of treatment. I quite like that idea, actually. Maybe we should, get, we should, we should have them. But that doesn't work at all. That's not the big point here. Later on, Jesus is actually going to talk about civil taxes. 
Remember somebody asks him, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And he says, whose face is on the coin? Later on, Paul, one of Jesus' first followers, will write about civil taxes. In Romans 13, he'll talk about how the state is God's servant, albeit imperfect, and that Christians are to pay taxes. If you want to explore that more, read some Romans 13. That's not the point here. The point here is this is specifically about the temple tax, the tax within this kingdom of God. And it tells us that we are sons, not subjects. That has big implications for how things work inside God's kingdom. It means we are not pawns in some religious pyramid scheme. This is not about collecting up money for those over us. This isn't seeing you all slaving to buy a nice mansion for Paul, our senior pastor. That's not, that's not what's going on. You know that's not what we are about as a church, but... It might sound silly and very obvious. There are plenty of high flyers in the worldwide church who do ride on the backs of God's people. Pastors with planes. Pastors with Rolls Royces. Pastors with mansions in different places paid for by their congregations. Search for the world's richest pastors and you get a scary list. It is not that sort of kingdom that you have joined. And more significantly, leaders in the church... They're not kings in this kingdom. God is the king. If anyone was going to get rich around here in this kingdom, if anyone was going to get rich, it would be the king himself. And do you know what? U2's Bono says to us, my God is not short of cash. And he's right. God already has plenty. He doesn't need our money. God is the king. God is the king and every Christian is his child. There's no second-class and first-class citizens here. There's no special place for people who stand in a pulpit and preach. People who wear fancy clothes, there's no special place for them. God has no grandchildren. There are no second-generation Christians. Young people, if you follow Christ, you're as much a child of God as your parents are. And not one of you in this room is just a flunky, somebody whose job it is to polish shoes and carry treats on trays. There's no, no people like that in God's kingdom. All children. Every Christian in this room is a child of the king. If we were the subjects in Jesus' parable then you might think that we're the ones God's going to use to raise money to pay for his projects and his schemes. You might think that's kind of what this is about. That's how some of the other ancient understandings of the universe, of how people and gods interacted, worked. So in in Babylonian mythology, you'll find the, the original creation of people was also that the gods could live a life of leisure. People were made so the gods could lay on their backs and have people bring them sacrifices of food and offerings. The, the whole purpose and point of humanity as a whole was to, to provide for the gods. When we read how God made and ordered the world, when we read Genesis and describes how things were set up, there's no hint of that at all. God doesn't need us to provide for him. If we were mere subjects, that arrangement might make sense, but we're not subjects, we're family. We're, we're royal children. We're part of the household. We, we aren't the ones who provide for God and his lifestyle. What we see and what we're looking at here today is that it's actually upside down. We don't provide for God. He provides for us. 
Look at the way Jesus finds provision here. He finds provision to meet his need to pay this tax. Uh, it's, a, it's a fishing trip. It's a remarkable fishing trip. Now, for starters, do you think Jesus was so broke he could not afford to pay this temple tax? I might remember that Judas carried around the disciples' money bag. This tax is two drachmas. It's about two days' labor for an ordinary person. It's not a vast amount of money. You might find that we read elsewhere in the Gospels that that Jesus was supported by a number of, of wealthy women who traveled with him. I don't think Jesus sets, out, sets Peter out on this fishing trip because Jesus doesn't have two drachmas to pay the tax. I don't think that's the point here. I think Jesus sets out the remarkable means for getting hold of the coin for another reason. I, want, I think he wants us to see how it isn't just that we don't pay tax as children of the king, but actually as children it goes the other way. We can expect the king to provide for our needs out of his abundance, out of his riches. Like Jesus has already said, like we read at the beginning, our heavenly father knows what we need and he provides for us. I think Jesus wants Peter in this story and us as we read and listen to learn a bit more about just how God provides though. Think about this for a moment. How peculiar and unnecessary is this fishing trip? Okay, Jesus has all power. Matthew Henry says he chose to take it out of a fish's mouth when he could have taken it from the hand of an angel. Isn't that true? Why didn't Jesus just uh, pull the coin out of a hat? Or, you know, out of Peter's ear, magician style, or out of Peter's mouth? Dental concerns, perhaps. Um, why didn't he just walk up to the door to the tax collectors and, and Jedi-style go, these aren't the subjects you're looking for. But the abundance of our king is sufficient for our every need. Our father knows what, he need, what we need and he provides for us out of his abundance, out of his overflowing treasure. But look at how this provision happens here. It's not a coin dropped out of the sky, is it? First, there's the fact that it's fishing. I don't think it's a coincidence that Peter's old occupation shows up again here, do you? Do you remember Peter, before he was called as a disciple, he was a fisherman? Jesus is going to show God's provision for his people through their occupation. And it's going to take some work. You might not think of fishing as work nowadays, but it was for Peter. It's going to take some work to enjoy the Father's provision. In fact, you might want to think about work as a part of the Father's provision for his people. Remember what we read in the Old Testament? We read this story of manna, this strange substance that fell out of the sky overnight to provide for this multitude of God's people in the unhospitable desert. Have you ever wondered why it wasn't just bread that fell out of the sky? It'd be handier, wouldn't it? Or prepackaged pret sandwiches that'd be really nice or imagine that there's some sort of celestial milkman instead and what the Hebrews do is they go into their tents at night they open their door in the morning and there's bread right outside the door that wasn't how it worked at all they had to go out around the camp pick up the scattered stuff and then they had to grind it and just boil or bake it had to prepare it they had work to do God's provision for his people, God's 
provision as our king for his children, so often requires our work. It's still his provision, right? Without the manna in the desert, that multitude of people are dead pretty quick. It's still his provision, but it takes work. Perhaps there's some wisdom here for parents. Would it be good for us to teach our children that God often uses our work to provide for us? That, as the saying goes, money doesn't grow on trees. Fact, it doesn't actually grow on trees, unless your currency is the leaf. Be, then you'd have terrible inflation. It, would be, it wouldn't, wouldn't actually work, so don't worry about that. So Peter has to work for the miraculous provision, okay? He has to go fishing. Now, God makes fishing pay. He makes fishing pay better than it would have done. But Peter still has a part to play, and often we have a part to play in seeing God provide for us. It's rare that we just get to sit back and God's provision drops out of the sky into our laps. That's rare. It happens, but it's rare. Do you need God to provide for you just now? Are you in need? Are you waiting faithfully for him to come is it possible perhaps rather than just waiting you have something to do a part to play in how God might provide for you so firstly God's provision takes this effort but the second thing I want to notice is that God's provision is exactly enough it's exactly enough I mean what's in the fish's mouth in the fish's mouth is a four drachma coin any mathematicians in the house two times two four it's just enough for Peter and Jesus' taxes now it's not a five drachma coin it's not a 500 drachma coin. It's not like a, a, a giant diamond that comes up in the fish's mouth. It's a four drachma coin. How's that for provision of it? Exactly what is needed. I think Peter would have rather had a 500 drachma coin, don't you? It's okay, Jesus. We've got plenty. We can pay the tax and, and we can sit back and take it easy because we've got so much now. We can relax. Like the rich fool of Jesus' parable. Let's take, life e- let's, take, let's take life easy. Let's eat and drink and be merry. Jesus, our money worries are over. The fish had a fortune. But it doesn't. In this peculiar miracle, through Peter's work in his old occupation, we've got exactly enough. Now, think back to the manna in the desert again. Think back to that manna in the desert again. Do you remember the strange way they couldn't collect more than enough or less than enough? Well, when they tried to keep it through the night into the next day, it wouldn't keep, except when God had decided exactly that the next day is a rest, and so it will keep. Every day they had to go out. Every day they had to go out and gather. God's provision is like this, isn't it? Exactly enough. Exactly enough. Just enough. And we should understand that as we seek for God's provision for us, His children. He is going to provide for His children. But it might take effort. And He's just going to give us enough. What we read here doesn't spell out why it's this way. We can speculate about it, but it doesn't spell it out. I've been reflecting on it this week, and I think the reason God provides exactly enough It's tied up with what we were talking about last week. Do you remember last week we had two pictures we finished with? The picture of a phone, a flat phone, how we don't have power in ourselves, we're insufficient. And the picture of a power line, how in dependence on God, how in connection to Him, 
got everything we need. That picture of our independence, which doesn't work, and our dependency, which does. Well, think about this. If God provides exactly what you need each day, if he provides just enough for each day, what does that help us stay? It helps us stay dependent. It helps us stay dependent. It's for our good that he provides just what we need so that we don't start thinking, well, look at this, I've got enough. Look what I've done, look how well I've done. But instead we turn to God and say, thank you, that was enough. I need some more. Thank you, that was enough. I need some more. We keep coming back to our God for just enough. So we've got this huge statement Jesus makes through the parable, okay? He says we are sons, children in God's kingdom, not just subjects of it. We've got this demonstration in how his provision works, that there's effort involved in the way God provides for his people, that he provides just enough to keep us dependent, perhaps. There's one more thing I want to see as we think about today's passage. We're children of the king. And while we're children of the king, we can all too easily start thinking that this abundant provision actually belongs to us. It's ours rather than his let me show you how this looks like. Imagine for a minute, if you don't, if you, if you do, sorry, but imagine for a minute you have a teenager in the house, a 17-year-old who needs to learn to drive, okay? And they borrow your car. Lots and lots to learn to drive. And uh, through many prayerful experiences in the co-pilot seat, through much stamping on the invisible brake that is not there, finally they make it and they passed and they can travel independently and they start borrowing your car. They start borrowing your car a lot, They start borrowing your car so much, almost every day. And then one day, for some reason, the car has to go. You gotta sell it. Maybe maybe you need the cash for something else. Maybe you need the car for something else. Imagine the moment that child finds out. Dude, you sold my car. They might say to you. But they would be quite wrong wasn't their car. It was never their car. You were always just lending it to them. As your children, they got to enjoy the wealth of your estate and your kingdom, but it wasn't theirs. It never belonged to them. Can you see that as we begin to think about God's provision for us, how we can start thinking, it's mine, but it's not. Have you, have you worked hard to make money? to provide for yourself? Have you worked hard to make ends meet? Has your work been financially productive? Perhaps your work has been remarkably financially productive. You've earned it, we might say. You've earned it. But we'd be wrong, wouldn't we? Who made you able to work? Who made your work productive? Who created and gifted you with the ability to do this? And so, who does it belong to? When we work for God's provision, what we get back is still God's provision. It's not mine. It's not ours. 
How often do we act as if our bank balances belong to us, as if our cars, our homes, our Xboxes, our paychecks belong to us? I earned it. It's mine. We see these as something God has no rights over, something which we might be willing to share with him if we're feeling quite you know, magnanimous and generous this week. Yeah, I guess I might give you a bit of my money. Perhaps I could give you some more of my savings. Maybe if I'm crazy mad, I could sell something that is mine and give some money to you, God. We're children of the king through Christ. As children of the king, we don't pay taxes. We're, we're rich, in fact, beyond our wildest imaginations. We get to share in the bounty, the abundance of God's possessions. He provides for us, but it's always all still his. Always we remain children of the king. Whenever the king whether we had a part to play in his providing for us or not, it was still his providing. Whether he's let us hold on to it for a long time, perhaps a generation, or whether it's just been ours for a few weeks, still his. And he might have something new to do with it. We are sons not subjects what an amazing truth we are children and not the king what an important thing to remember let's pray together